Okay, welcome to the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. We're happy to be here in our first day recording at the Seaway Studio. We're welcoming Alicia Furtado. Alicia is a Bachelor of Commerce degree from Queen's. She worked as a teaching assistant. She worked at a management consulting firm, was involved in the TEDx conferences, received a number of awards from the National Post and the Globe Mail. But she's here today in her role as co-founder and CEO of RateHub. RateHub's tagline is they give people the knowledge, tools, and power to choose better personal finance in the areas of mortgages, credit cards, banking, investments, and insurance. Alyssa, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. You're actually our first guest that we're recording here in the studios at Seaway. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start by having you give us a bit of a snapshot of RateHub. Now, in the intro, I talked a little bit about what the company is, but give us a snapshot of where RateHub stands today. Absolutely. So we at RateHub, we help Canadians find the best deals and products for across mortgages, credit cards, insurance products, and banking and investing products. Um, and in the mortgage space, we actually help people complete their entire mortgage journey all the way from online search to close. Um, we've built out an awesome team of mortgage agents under our brand CanWise Financial. Um, and they are, they've won brokerage of the year for the last two years in Canada. And so your market is targeted specifically on Canadians versus broader international yes. markets? Yeah. How many people work at the company? That is a great <laughs> question. Um, I think uh, around 115 to 120. Wow. Yeah. And you're split between, I know at least Kingston and Toronto. Any other geographies? Yes. So we also have brokerage offices in Montreal as well as Calgary. And then in Toronto, we have both brokerage and technology teams. And then in Kingston, um, our entire software development team is focused here. I did take a look at your website beforehand. So you have 800,000 monthly users. That's a phenomenal number. And I think I actually was just got a message from the team. I think in January, we crossed the million mark, which is super exciting for the first time. When you think of the size of the Canadian market, that is a tremendous number of users. It is. It's pretty. Yeah. When you think about Canadian market, then trim it down to those eligible, you know, the the eligible age to be participating in the financial services market. It's a pretty phenomenal reach that we've been able to build. And I look back at 2018 and you completed a $12 million financing. That's a large thing. So when you think of the, the target audience for this podcast, which is an undergrad at Queens trying to think about how to start a startup and listening to you talk about 150 person plus company, a couple of years ago, you raised 12, more than $12 million. I'd like to turn our attention to how RateHub got started and what types of things did you do that really set you up? to become an entrepreneur? what? How did you get bitten by the entrepreneurial bug? It's a great question. So uh, which one do you want me to tackle first? Do you want me to tackle kind of the story of RateHub or what inspired me as an entrepreneur? Let's start with what inspired you as an entrepreneur. So I would say in my undergrad, I had a few experiences with entrepreneurship. So I had been um, a TA myself in statistics, and I'd also taken course cram. It was a program in economics that helped you kind of study for the exam in two days. And so uh, my best friend and I, we were always thinking about kind of what we could put our heads together and do. And she was TAing, I think it was management accounting. So we went to the dean uh, at the School of Business and said, hey, we've got great experience in these courses. We want to run our own course course cram, if you will. And we want to teach our students that are willing to 
you know, help them study for the statistics exam in two days. So we, I kind of went around to the classes, got permission from the professors, marketed this program, and then developed the curriculum. And I think I was able to earn something like I can't remember if it was three to six thousand dollars for one weekend. It, I think, to this day is probably one of the most per hour I've ever made. Um, but that was an amazing example of I had an idea, I put it into action, and then I saw that the results happened. Um, and then that kind of inspired us in our last summer after we graduated before starting our jobs. We had an, another idea, and again, it was seeing another model. I'd always, growing up in Kingston, I had seen that the engineering department ran a, um, I think it's called Science Quest. So the engineering students would act as counselors, and local kids would come to the university campus and learn about engineering. So again, that same best friend and I thought, well, why don't we do this? There's nothing teaching young kids about business or entrepreneurship. Um, so we, our last kind of two to three weeks of the summer when the elementary schools were still in. We ran around and did one hour workshops for free in local elementary schools. And then afterwards we said, well, if you had fun today and you want to come and learn more about business for a week long, you can sign up for break into business. That was the camp that we developed. Um, And so again, that was you know, we saw a working model, adapted it to something we were excited and interested about. And then we were able to fill, um, I think we ran the camp for two weeks the first summer out of the school of business. Wow. So essentially two side hustles as you were finishing undergrad, Yeah. you identify an opportunity and you found it to be energizing to go after setting up sales, marketing, bring in the people, figure out what the value proposition is. And, yeah, incredibly energizing. And I'd also, always at school, I'd always been a very motivated student. I liked academics. I was TAing on the side. I was coaching, cheerleading. I, I was always just so passionate and energized. And then I found when I spent two years in consulting, I learned a ton and it was incredibly hard work and they really pushed my skill set. But I didn't find that same passion that I had had in undergrad. And so that kind of led me to think, you know, is a very corporate career path the right one for me? I didn't think that it was. And so I wrote the business plan for Raid Hub at the same time that I applied to teacher's college. So I was kind of thinking either I start my own business or I become a teacher and then innovate within the education space. Okay. That's a nice segue into the Raid Hub story. So what was the problem that you'd identified that you wanted to solve with Rate Hub? So the, the problem for Rate Hub was really twofold. So on the one hand, um, my business partner, his name's James, and we're still business partners today. So he was operating a brokerage at the time in the mortgage space. And he had started to buy online leads from other sites that did comparisons. And his bills were starting to get quite large. And he said, you know, there's a real business here. All we would need is, it's you know, it'd just be a website. And if we could just build a website, then maybe we could start earning 20K a month. Um, and so when I dove into it, what I found amazing is that in the mortgage space, banks were still posting, they were listing posted rates on their website. So you might go to a bank website, see a rate like 5.49 when the lowest rate at the time was more like 3.29. And the bank strategy at the time was come into our branches, talk to us, and then we can haggle in person. But for many personality types, they just want instant, quick information, transparent, and they don't want to have to haggle to get those rates. So um, my business partner, James, proved that there was a a business model there. And then I really fell in love with the consumer problem of just access to transparent information. Using digital tools to reach consumers to give them the best rate on various financial products. Exactly. Talk a little bit about your co-founders. So you mentioned one of them, but even during your your undergrad with the, the side hustle, you mentioned 
how did you come to meet with them and how did you decide that they were all sort of simpatico as people you wanted to spend a lot of time with? Because like most overnight successes, companies take a long time and you'll be spending a lot of time with co-founders. And it's good for people thinking of starting a startup to really think about that as yes. they get going. Yes. So uh, in my undergrad, um, the person that I did both my business ventures with was Monica. Uh, and so she, we met kind of the first day we moved into res, we were floor mates and then became housemates for three years. And she actually lives in Atlanta now. Um, she graduated, she did her MBA at Harvard and then, um, fell in love with someone and moved to Atlanta. And she's actually running break into business in Atlanta, which is awesome. Um, and then, uh, my business partner at rate hub, uh, we all also met through Queens commerce. So we were classmates and then also run the business alongside my brother, our CT, Chris, um, who runs our Kingston office. And so your co-founding team, did you quickly sort of divide up who had responsibilities for tech and who had responsible for... How did you divide mm -hmm. up it's the a good responsibilities? We were, I guess we were kind of lucky in a sense because originally James stayed operating at the mortgage brokerage that he was working at. And so he played the role of investor and advisor and subject matter expert. So when I was building the first mortgage calculator, I was on the phone with him trying to figure out how CMHC insurance worked and land transfer tax and stuff like that. But he wasn't operating in the day-to-day -day at that point. So there wasn't a lot of uh, for us to overlap on. Um, and then, so I ran the business for the first eight or nine months by myself. Um, and at that point was spending a lot of my time just managing and calling up our, that we were using a, an outsourced contracting firm for development. And it was just taking up too much time. My brother was just wrapping up. He'd done Waterloo engineering, came, was coming back from Microsoft. And so there was just, it was nice. There was a very clear need for a CTO and he, I convinced him to fill the shoes for, I said, come on board. It'll just be six months. And it's nine years later. Great story. Yeah. So uh, when you think back, so there's, there's certain quotes, Y Combinator and the like to say that mm -hmm. when, if you look back and look at the MVP product that you've launched and you don't wince just a little bit, uh, you waited too long to launch. Mm. Would you say that's true? A hundred percent. I, one of my favorite uh, tools is the Wayback time machine. It's a website you can go to, you pull up, you enter in a URL, pull up the year and you can see what the website looked like in that year. No um, and we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And so I've, you know, forced myself to look back at those early days and Hey, I even wince at, at some of our older versions of the site that are still up today. We've just gone through another rebrand and look and feel update. And so when you see the old stuff, even from just six months ago, it, it still produces that same reaction. But if you were advising other people starting startups, is it best just to get going with a buggy, not so perfect product and just iterate? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the minimum viable product though, I, I think it's important to think about the minimum working product. So you want to think about what's the most basic feature that you could launch without bugs that would work, but it doesn't need all of the bells and whistles. Kind of what's the one piece of value you could deliver uh, and de-scope it to its smallest form. I'm also a big fan. I mean, in technology, we love thinking about all the things we can automate, but developers are expensive and the more that you build up software and automation, it's kind of, I've been told a good way to think about it is like building up inventory. And so you want to make sure that the business can justify it. So sometimes we will, we'll know down the road that we want to automate billing and invoicing and a backend for our providers to log in. But for the first three years until we get up to scale, it might be faster to have a human doing that until we say, okay, this is now we're at the scale that's appropriate to justify automating this. So in the early days of the product, was there a lot of 
human work behind the scenes? And and there still is today. It kind of depends. Um, mortgages was always our it was our first product to market in the comparison side on Rate Hub, and so we we probably have the most sophisticated automations there. Banking and investing is one that we got to market more quickly, did more things manually, but now that's catching up with us, and it's time to automate some of those things. And so, a couple of other questions, if we. What was your initial go-to-market strategy? Presumably you have a two-sided model where you need to get Mm -hmm. kind of the mortgages or the financial products lined up from the different institutions, and then you want consumers to come. Kind of describe which you had to get first, or did they come in parallel? How did that all evolve? It's a great question. So, um, And double-sided platforms are always hard because you need both at the same time, but to bring one on, usually the other side needs to see value there. So um, we're kind of lucky in that mortgage rates apply provincially. So it wasn't such that I needed regional providers and rates in every single town across Ontario and then Canada. Um, So to start, and then because I mentioned that the banks listed very high rates, um, the brokers were far more aligned to the business model of give the customer the transparent lowest best rates. So basically to launch, I needed three brokers within each province. And then I could still list the rates from the big banks, but not a lot of customers were clicking on them um, or a small smaller percentage because they were going to the low rates offered by my customers. The next question I have is, in, in various startup circles, it, it's difficult to quantify what this is, but I'd love to get your take on it. And that is, Describe when you knew you might have had product market fit and when Mm. you were ready to kind of scale and various people define product market fit differently. And I'd love to hear what your story is for Rate Hub. For our, it's, it's kind of uneventful um, because I think, you know, in, in some of the stories I told you of what sparked my entrepreneurial energy and excitement, I was always looking at models that worked and adapting them in a new way. And so a couple of things, when we launched Rate Hub, there were publicly traded lead gen companies and financial services in the US and UK, multiple, multiple successful publicly traded and large independents. And then in Canada, there was a site uh, that existed as well. So I knew that the model and my business partner was spending 20000 a month on it, so I knew the business model was there. Yeah. So we had product market fit pretty early on. I think the day I launched, I ran some AdWords campaigns, so I, I bid on some keywords on Google to rank at the top, and we were generating leads that first day. Almost out of the gate. So, yes, and we used to, my, my brother and I talk about this all the time, we used to get every single email um, anytime a lead came through, and a lead was how we connected a customer with a broker, we were delivering for the customer, we were earning revenue, and Chris remembers being on the golf course one day and his phone going off like crazy, and so it was actually a big milestone to have our emails removed from every lead because we couldn't keep up anymore, so that was kind of a pivotal. I think for us, product market fit was there, but we had to figure out how do we acquire users in a scalable, profitable way. So how do we build up to that million? We want a million Canadians a month visiting us, but how are we going to get there without taking out billboards and TV ads that we just can't afford? Right. So those early days, did the unit economics necessarily work and you needed to figure out how to automate and how to reach those customers digitally and how to efficiently and how to scale. Exactly. So talk about the types of expertise you have in the company now, because Often there's a founding team that's technical, there's business development yes. and other things. But as you grow quickly, we talk a lot about the, the STEM areas here mm. at Queen's, but mm-hmm. you need people who can write, you need creatives, you need others. So paint a bit of a picture for those types of skill sets you need in your organization, digital marketers, whatever the case may yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, you've hit a lot of them. Um, 
I'll start if I, if I split the business in two. So the side of the business that my, um, co-founder runs, um, on the brokerage side. So, uh, very, he has incredibly deep expertise within the mortgage industry in Canada, and then a phenomenal sales leader to run a sales team of, I, I don't know the exact number, but probably approaching 60 to 70. Um, so that's a huge side of the business, um, that he runs. And then, um, on, on my scope, a lot of the roles you mentioned. So we now have a, um, VP of product and he runs a product team of analytics designers and product managers. Um, we have our head of marketing, uh, who runs, we have for each of our different business units across credit cards, mortgages, insurance, banking, and investing. We have a leader of each of those businesses. So he has those reporting into him, um, as well as digital marketing. And under that team falls content, PR and communications, and a designer that specifically focuses on our marketing materials, uh, a great partnerships team. So with sales expertise, they take care of our banner ads, but then our partnerships on the lead generation side, very, very, uh, talented and growing, um, finance and operations department, HR and talent is another, um, is another department that we have. I think those are the major ones. Well, I think with 150 plus people, I can see why you'd need across those. As I say, partway through this interview, it's it's such a great story to have it focus on a Canadian market and build to 150 person company that's based in Ontario largely. I guess you've got offices yes. you've got other places. Yeah. So let me go back. And this question is really about scale up and how your management team grew. Talk a little bit about how your roles and responsibilities changed from the early days to now, presumably you're less day to day, more setting strategy, making sure culture stays on track, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's actually quite rare. So congratulations to you to go from being a co-founder to being at the company when they're at the scale up stage. Mm-hmm. How, how did you negotiate those transitions and what sort of some of the things that people can think about as they're starting a startup to kind of set the stage to be ready to scale? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you have to take each you know, whether it's few days, few months or few years in stride. And there is this right balance between you can't get so far, far ahead of your growth that you're putting, you know, hiring more people and allowing yourself to step back before the company economics can support that. But then you can't be so in the weeds that the company takes off without you. Um, and I think when you go through those transitions, depending on where, you know, I think around the 30 person mark, it can be incredibly painful for founders and leaders. I'm in a really nice stage. The side of the business that I, I run is about, again, I'm always trying to figure out the numbers. I think about 60, 65, and that's a really nice number. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I still know everybody at the company. I understand the projects that are going on um, and can, you know, dive in and play an active role and and elevate to, to work on strategy and some of that stuff. There's definitely been been periods of significant self-doubt and wondering, you know, really, am I the person that's going to lead this business? Um but I've had some great advice from people that just say, you know, well, if, if you spend all your time thinking about that, you're not going to be the right person to lead the business. And, you know, to be a leader, you need to be self-reflective enough that some of the times you are wondering if you're good enough and if it is you. And that's the only way you're going to be hard enough on yourself and push yourself hard enough. But your only option is to just show up, execute to the best of your abilities. And one day the board might tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, this is the end of your tenure and and that's OK. But you can't be so afraid of it that you're not out there kicking ass kind yeah, of thing. That's a great perspective. Yeah. So a related question to that early on, were there any mentors or advisors that you helped 
meet with either in the business or outside the business that helped help you, I want to say, yeah, work through things, work through the yeah. business and grow the company and all those good things. I definitely, I think I process and problem solve by speaking to people. That's just definitely one of the ways that I come to conclusions or think through my thoughts. So everyone from, you know, my, my business parts, partners, my business partner, as I mentioned, to my brother, to our board today. Um, I've had several entrepreneurs that I've met along the way with more experience than me that I, I can confide in and get their opinions on. Um, my friends, my spouse, um, my dad and I talk a lot about just management and people and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I definitely have leaned on, you know, so many, so many people that have been so happy and willing to help. But would you say that's important f- message for people starting companies today is talk to whoever you can that will be willing to help because all the different opinions help you come up with a a decision-making rubric or a a process to help move your company forward? Or is it, I think you said earlier, sort of the buck stops with you, so to speak. And at some point boards or others may come along and say, we might need to make a change. Well, I think, I think more what I've learned is that you have to lead in a way that's authentic to you. You have to seek advice in a way that works for you. And so if you're the type of person that you know, internalizes more independently and wants to do that thinking. That's not to say that can't work. Just for me, um, my style is definitely to get other people's opinion and that I might not always go with it, but it helps me formulate my own opinion, gives me the different perspectives. I weigh things from different sides and then can make my decision. Um, I think though, if you are going to reach out to people, you have to be a good listener and you have to genuinely want to listen. Um, I've definitely had people kind of ask for a meeting with me to pick my brain, but then they end up just telling me their strategy the whole time. And, you know, you, whereas, it's not a two-way discussion. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when I would reach out to people, I genuinely wanted their advice and would listen with open ears. And it didn't mean I have to, had to implement everything they said, but would really listen and reflect. Just in the last few minutes, what are your thoughts on sort of the state of the ecosystem in either Ontario or Canada for startups today compared to when you got going with RateHub? I think there's even more opportunities. There's a lot of awareness around um, startup and and technology companies. And there's a lot of, this might be a bit controversial, I think there's quite a bit of funding out in the ecosystem, certainly for scale-ups. I'm RateHub bootstrapped its way and really focused on early days figuring out economics and how to earn revenue and minimize costs and be profitable and how do we scale that. I'd love to see, I really think there's an opportunity for more entrepreneurs to, you don't have to build an app. It doesn't have to be worth a billion dollars. Can you build a company that pays your own salary, that sets you free and gives you independence that you can responsibly scale over time? Um, I think that technology startups have become a bit glorified and, and they're, when I'm giving people advice and they're thinking about starting something, I just remind them of how risky they are. And we see the success stories of the Airbnbs and the Ubers, but there's so many that aren't successful. So really forcing yourself, if you're thinking of starting something, do you have the risk tolerance to go for a small percentage chance, less than far less than 1% that you're going to be worth um, hundreds of millions to a billion? Or would you actually be really satisfied to just set your own course, solve a problem you're passionate about, and build a company that can pay you a great salary. We have quite a few companies in our our portfolio that, that we help have that philosophy. And when you think of Eastern Ontario and Kingston, it's a public sector area. But the other 
part of the economy are companies that have less than 20 people, mm-hmm. right? And there's nothing wrong with building mm-hmm. a company that has there's a lot right million with it. to $10 million, dollars, right? As, as, as to say, you can earn a, a nice living and, and employ people and have economic impact. So I think that's a, a yep. great philosophy, and particularly for a region that's not associated with a major center like the GTA, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as my last question, what advice would you give... Uh, somebody in undergrad or in grad school at Queen's thinking about starting a startup, what would be your top two or three things to think about? My top piece of advice would be if something's burning inside of you to go after it, the earlier you start in your life, you actually have a lot more freedom to take chances and take risks. You don't have a mortgage yet. You don't have kids. You don't necessarily have a spouse. So I was, especially as a female, I feel incredibly lucky that I started at 25, uh, because it meant that when I was 32, I had my first child and I just had my second, but the business was in a place where I could take a step back and find a little bit more balance at a a time when my life needed more balance. So, um, if you have an idea, go for it, start earlier. Um, I think the second one I already mentioned is just, you know, step one, figure out how to get some revenue, pay for yourself. And then that, that relieves the pressure that you have to go back and get a job in, in another 12 to 18 months. And then from there, that gives you a solid foundation to start scaling from. Um, and then on the third, uh, on the third front, just, we all go through periods of self doubt and there's just going to be hard times where you question if you're doing the right thing, where you, you know, think it might not be worth it. And we all do that. You just have to find a way to get through and focus on the things that matter. Okay. Well, Alyssa, it's been a wonderful conversation. Congratulations on the success at Rate Hub. Thank you so Uh, much. Hope it continues as I'm sure it will. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Awesome. And with that, we'll conclude this episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, like, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about research, innovation, and entrepreneurship, please see the show notes for a full list of programs and services available here at Queen's University.